if I were to think of some of the top trends in food industry, um, certainly automation and standardization is right there at the top of the list. During the pandemic, we had many facilities that either had certain lines that they just did not have enough employees to run. So you had dormant lines and certainly you had facilities even that completely sh shut down for two or three weeks at a time. Hi there, food enthusiasts. Uh, this is Jim Mason with futurefoodcast.io. Uh, and uh, thanks for tuning in, uh, where we introduce thought leaders in today's food industry and discuss trends and technology that will shape the future of food. So today we're speaking with Katie Moore from Sterilix. So Katie, how are you doing today? I'm well, thanks, Jim. Great. So Katie, it's great to have you here on the show. Would you mind sharing with our guests um, what you do at Sterilex, uh, job title, responsibilities, and so on? Give us some context for our conversation. Sure. Um, so I am the current vice president of sales for Sterilex. I've been with the company um, just under nine years in various different roles, serving um, the food industry and uh, as well as animal health on the team. And Sterilex's primary focus as a company is solving um, complex microbiological challenges within um, the food supply chain, everything from upstream agriculture on farm, um, solving those micro challenges all the way to the food processing plant and even into the um, food service, food retail space. Yeah, so that's actually a big deal. So what you just painted a picture of is you actually start all the way at the farm level and go all the way up to the retail level, right? Yes, correct. That's, <laughs> so I'll say, yes, it's a lot of responsibility. It's a lot of ground to cover on your end as well as a company. Um, and, it, and so with all of that responsibility, there's different challenges, I assume, at each point in the supply chain? There is. I mean, the challenges that you encounter, um, let's say, in live production poultry are unique and different than those that you might encounter in um, a produce processing facility, um, you know, whether it be in plant or, or field packing produce that's literally coming off the vine, being washed, put into a package, all the way to certainly their, your, your deli meat slicers in your local grocery store. The um, food safety and um, all of those variables uh, that we monitor to, to ensure that we're putting a safe, consistent product out to consumers, it's going to be different in each environment. Yes. So um, as a good way to transition into what I call the different types of products you offer, give me an example of the kind of products that um, would be offered to somebody who's a packer, let's say, uh, packing grapes or something like that. And as you compare it to maybe somebody who's doing chicken processing in a chicken processing plant. Yeah. So um, certainly those environments are vastly different. Uh, if we're talking about something like produce, um, the equipment is the, the equipment in the environment is going to largely be very, very wet. It's a wet process. You're either bringing in um, if you're bringing it into a facility for repack, it's coming in on ice. There's a lot of condensation. Anytime you have moisture, you have the growth of microorganisms. Um, and so anything that's coming out of the dirt, out of the ground, or out of a field has the potential for contamination from the soil itself, which naturally has microorganisms. But also, you know, you have birds and animals and um, all of that exposure in the field. And then you're bringing that into a plant and trying to ensure that without damaging the produce, you're prop properly sanitizing it sanitizing the surfaces it comes in contact with, and we're providing a product that goes to the supermarket that's ready to eat. And so um, from a product perspective, um, we focus on high-level disinfection and biofilm removal. Biofilms are the, it's that natural habitat that your most resistant microorganisms form for themselves. And biofilms will, will form in all these little nooks and crannies on the processing equipment, in the facility itself, on your harvesters, um, anywhere where there's moisture, a food source, and just enough harborage from friction, you can have a resistant biofilm grow. And once you have a biofilm present, your traditional sanitizers and cleaners don't work very well. 
um, it's not enough to address that. So we focus on that next level sanitation to really address that. We have EPA registered liquid interventions that would be used in a very wet plant like um, grapes, like you mentioned, produce processing. And then if we were talking about whether it be poultry farm, where we're looking at entryways and how do we limit pathogens that might make birds sick um, on the farm, or if we're looking at entryways and floors, even in a meat processing facility, um, you know, how do we limit the movement of pathogens that are gonna make humans ill on, um, on poultry product? We have an EPA registered dry floor product that's used in that environment to control that movement of microorganisms and limit it in the environment. Yeah, that's a lot. Uh, yeah, so it, so as you said, I'll call it grapes is the wet process you gave an example. And so it's, I'll call it, I'll call it a wet environment, I guess, when it's picked, sort of, right? And yep. then it goes to the packer where it's wet. And then moving through, it's pretty much wet all the way. When I think about it, all the way through to the retailer, like Walmart or Stop and Shop, when they open up that case of grapes as well, um, even though it's been packed into a plastic bag and everything else. Um, uh, it's exposed to output moisture in that entire process, including shipping and everything else. And then um, by comparison, the poultry um, stuff, you're, you're on a poultry farm, you're growing chickens in a sense, you're harvesting them, um, mm -hmm. uh, you're shipping them from the farm to a plant in a sense where they wind up getting processed at the plant. And then from there, they may go through a distribution facility and out to a retailer. Is that the correct uh, process flow for the poultry? It absolutely is. And, um, you know, if you're looking at poultry even further back and you're looking at hatching eggs, um, there's those, that movement of live animal from hatched egg on. And each step in the process that you detailed has its own unique environment with um, needs for both traceability, for microcontrol, for proper handling, for preservation of, of quality and food safety. And so, um, you know, it's a lot of different steps to ensure that that, that that bird is hatched, grown, makes it to the processor, goes through the process and makes it, makes it to your grocery store shelf safely. Yeah, that's right. So there's so many steps in that. Um, how do you actually, so you, I can, correct me where I'm wrong. I'll say, if, it, if I'm looking at a processor plant, I can sterilize the equipment, clean the floor. I can do something to validate or verify that in a sense, the equipment's clean, the floor is clean, that I'm wearing what I call the right, um, uh, I'll call it suit in a sense that prevents contamination on my end as a worker there. So I can do all that. And I assume we have a, I'll call it, uh, somehow uh, in process quality inspections on all that. Does that make sense? Yes, very much so. Um... So within the food processing environment, um, food, the food processors of today have very robust environmental monitoring programs where they're looking at the environment itself. And um, it's a mixture of visual and organoleptic inspection. Certainly they use methods like ATP and um, other swabbing methods to look for the presence of microorganisms or the indicators of harmful microorganisms. So um, certainly, depending on the environment, the um, sanitation cycle in length and frequency is different, but um, there's kind of a constant inspection of safety, functionality of the equipment, um, certainly pulling product samples and testing um, as needed, there's, there's a pretty robust program for monitoring both the environment and the um, end product that's being produced. Yeah. So when, when I, and again, I'm a novice to all this, um, while I eat chicken and certainly eggs as well, <laughs> I certainly have never been part of that process. The, the question I, one of the questions I would have is how much of that is something that's automated at this point versus manual on all of that you know, cleanliness inspections and stuff like that. I don't know what can be automated, I guess. Yeah, no, I mean, that's actually a huge trend in industry. Um, if I were to think of some of the top trends in food industry, um, certainly automation and standardiz standardization is right there at the top of the list. 
So certainly the breakdown of, let's say, a chicken itself, the breakdown of the bird itself, once it's been harvested, um, there, there is automation that occurs there. But even in the entire food environment, um, there's a drive toward automation, automatic packers, um, even automated systems that measure um, sanitation chemical levels in, in bulk tanks. So there's not somebody walking into the chemical room taking inventory. It's an automated system that, you know, puts out a PO, knows, knows when product needs to be reordered. Um, it's, it's really a play at efficiency, at um, controlling water consumption, controlling costs. Um, also an, another current challenge that's big in industry is shortages in labor. And so certainly some of these labor shortages are driving that demand for automation as well, um, simply because we, we have a lot, um, a lot that currently does rely on um, manual work um, from employees coming into the facility. So there's certainly that drive towards automation. I don't know that we're completely there when it comes to um, food safety and sanitation, the space that I'm most familiar in. Certainly there's, um, there's been talk of automating that further. Um, there are things like floor scrubbers and other pieces of equipment that do some of the work that would have done, been done manually in the past. But um, a lot relies on well-trained employees um, doing the job when it comes to sanitation and food safety. But I think the demand for automation is going to continue. Yeah, automation makes sense. I am uh, when we beyond the automation part. When I talk about things like cleanliness and inspections and stuff like that, I assume um, in addition to whatever visual inspections happen, you know, to say yes, I wipe this counter down with the right. Uh, following the right standard process, wiped it three times with whatever, is it Parquat, I think, is one of the products that you have? Is that right? Yeah, Parquat technology. Parquat. Um, yeah. So if I wipe that counter down and the process says do it three times and now I can say I've done it, at some point I've got to say, okay, well, how do you verify now that that actually is clean to mm -hmm. put some chickens on it, on that counter or whatever? And I would say, okay, I followed the standard process. I did all the right applications, but then beyond just looking at it and visually say yes, and it also looks clean, I don't see anything there. Um, that's where I think eventually, at some point you would say, maybe, maybe there's technology that you would have at some point that could help with that from a sensor perspective. Is that right? Yeah, it is. I mean, um, there's always new diagnostic tools that are being developed. Um, for example, Sterilex carries a product called Indicon Gel. And Indicon is specifically meant for biofilm, so that high concentration of microorganisms that have harbored together in a, in a specific area. And so that product is used um, not just as an indicator of dirty or clean, like ATP might be used, but specifically to um, identify those harborage points and um, you know, open up the discussion about sanitary design and you know, how do we pursue having a process and an environment um, that can easily be cleaned. And um, while we drive toward that goal, Indicon's used as a tool um, to identify those points that need extra cleaning and sanitation steps. Um, There's certainly other tools for um, monitoring specific microorganisms of concern like Listeria. Um, and the, the facilities use everything from um, APC or um, other, um, other counts um, to indicate overall presence of micro. The products used for sanitation, those killing agents, um, sanitizers and disinfectants, those do go through rigorous review by the EPA. All killing agents um, go through the EPA and there is a required process for showing the ability to kill at a designated level and um, for designated microorganisms. So certainly those those folks that are providing to industry those killing agents that are going to be used on that countertop you referenced go through a pretty rigorous process of validating the chemistry's work as well. Yeah, so, um, and, and I'm not enough familiar with the EPA standards. Do they have specific uh, regulations around, um, I'll call it organic versus other types of chemicals that are used? So they do. Um, EPA specifically focuses on killing ability. So um, what they're regulating is like 
um, for something to be a disinfectant, it has to achieve a six log reduction on those microorganisms listed under disinfection. Um, when we talk about organic, for example, um, organic is more about, um, so there are procedures that have to be in place in the facility, but also those chemistries that are used for organic processing have mm -hmm. to be from an approved list. Um, okay. Or if you're going to apply something that um, that isn't on the approved organic list, it has to be followed by a potable water rinse. Um, and that's certainly been a challenge for organic processors. Some of our most effective killing agents are not on the approved organic list, and it can be very difficult to um, to innovate, to create new molecules or um, new chemistry that fall within the boundaries of organic, but are still very effective. Um, so there certainly are many organic processors that will opt to use um, a non-organic chemistry followed by a potable water rinse. So you're at least getting the high level killed. Oh, cool. All right. So that explains, in a sense, how I can wind up with something that, in a sense, is uh, doesn't contain what I call uh, non-organic chemicals on the food, which is pretty good as a process for sure. Um, interesting. All right. So that's all. <laughs> So there's, you've been going through a lot. The other thing I'll ask, probably I'm gonna guess, is that all of this, like a lot of other things, um, when it comes to quality control in the environment now, it's always statistical analysis and trends and, and I'll call it whatever the periodic testing is. I, so I, I'm not familiar with what in a sense is, who monitors the testing. So you're providing in a sense, the solutions for uh, cleaning the facilities and everything else. You're providing uh, procedures you know, that have been approved uh, to do that. You have outside partners that are experts in helping plants, I assume, learn how to use all these things, right? Yeah, um, we have a group of dedicated partners in the sanitation space that um, provide our products, but also are a wealth of information when it comes to the entire sanitation uh, process and the standards thereof. They're providing their detergents and um, detergent products their degreasers, their lubricants, and their service and support in the facility um, in partnership with us. And then we're providing our products and certainly our expertise and support to make sure that our food processors get everything they need in order to be in regulatory compliance, but also to just get the best quality and safety results. Um, so it is a collaboration between us and our distribution partners to bring these products to market and, and help our food processors really be successful. So, um, so, all right, the challenge is if companies are using these products effectively or not, um, is there any feedback mechanism, if you will, maybe you can describe it for, in effect, somebody's using the products in it, I'll quote a chicken processing plant, things are either going well or they're not from an inspection of quality <laughs> standpoint. How does, uh, I'll call it your chain, your channel, which is you and the partners get feedback on what works or what doesn't work? with the issues that come up? Yeah, um, we really do aspire to be a partner with our end use companies. So um, we participate in their sanitation meetings. Um, we regularly meet with quality and ask for feedback. They do share their swab results and talk about what we can do to improve programs. Um, it, it is really a lot of communication and um, sharing that mapping of where they're getting hot spots and where they're where they're having these these microorganism issues explode, mapping that across the facility, and then understanding what the source is and helping them seek and destroy. Um, that's really a collaboration, and we're constantly asking for that feedback on what's going well, what isn't, and generally they're happy to give that because we're helping them solve their problems. I think when um, where there is a breakdown of communication, and this is this is a current trend in industry across the food industry, is that there are there is such a labor shortage, and there is extremely high turnover. So, um, quality and sanitation staff are turning over very quickly, and so it's a process of maintaining those relationships and making sure that as new plant staff enter, we're providing them the proper education um, and the proper tools to be successful. Um, and especially if you're trying to conduct training remotely because of COVID, or maybe you can't get into the facility as frequently as you normally would, um, that can be a real challenge to try and keep those um, lines of communication open and keep people trained 
and stay in front of them so that they understand that the preventive programs we've put in place with our products are there for a reason um, and, and serve a purpose that benefits them. Uh, yeah, uh, everything you just brought up, it's a challenge for a lot of industries, but I can see there's a higher criticality uh, for, in a sense, proper training in food safety industry than there are in many other industries. Um, you know, if I don't fix a display right in a store window, it's just ugly. Nobody dies from it or nobody gets sick. Right. Um, so big, big difference here in the importance of what that kind of work. And therefore, you're right, um, not just the shortage of labor, but in a sense, getting people effectively, accurately trained, and then knowing that the proper procedures are being followed, then collecting the data to say we've got the results. And so, yeah, Jim did go through training. Jim is out there, and I can see from the data coming back um, that the work he has been doing uh, hasn't, ha following the, I'll quote, the stuff we assigned him to do, uh, has produced consistently good results. So you would assume that, therefore, I must be well-trained at that point. But that, that is an immense challenge to go through that. It's almost like we say in um, devices, we go through something called a calibration where we kind of like tune the device, if you will. <laughs> Uh, to, yep. to work effectively. And I feel like Jim just got calibrated on a poultry line so that he can do a better job cleaning the equipment, which is actually pretty good. Yeah. So but it's a team effort. I mean, to get a sanitation crew um, calibrated is a great word, um, calibrated and on track and all working together, following the same safety procedures um, for their own safety. I mean, we're talking about heavy equipment and chemicals. Um, getting them um, all working together and on the same page and functioning under the same protocols, same safety pr procedures, it's, it's quite an undertaking. It's funny. I, obviously, I've never worked in a poultry plant, but I'll, it sounds idiotic. It almost sounds to me, I'm familiar with the aircraft industry. And so I'll say it almost like when you take a plane out of service, you know, to repair something, you bring it back into service. If I fixed whatever it is, one bolt on a seat or something, and I took it out of service, um, you look at what it's going to take in terms of safety checks to get the plane back operational. Now that I replaced that broken seat, um, there's all kinds of checks that have to go through it. I would sounds like the same challenge in these food processing plants that when you have equipment that goes offline for whatever reason to get it back online, it sounds like there would be an extensive process to validate all that stuff. There is um, very much so. And we saw that once again, even more so during COVID. Um, during the pandemic, we had many facilities that either had certain lines that they just did not have enough employees to run. So you had dormant lines and certainly you had facilities even that completely sh shut down for two or three weeks at a time. And um, you know, for that to come back up and running like a well-oiled machine with new staff, with um, you know, making sure that you've thoroughly cleaned and sanitized everything. And there's other supply chain hiccups. A lot of our facilities struggle to get their basic supplies. Um, there's been a lot of disruption in supply chain. That's really challenging, um, you know, especially for those facilities that aren't used to it. Seasonal produce, for example, they're more used to high season and dormant season um, and going in and out of production. But um, that's kind of a continuing challenge for that industry is that when your produce is coming in, you can't slow down. Um, you need to be able to run at full capacity to move the products through because it's short shelf life. Um, but you also have to have proper sanitation procedures. And so they've implemented programs for pre-season and post-season deep cleans, and then trying to have breakdowns throughout the course of the season to make sure that they maintain food safety. Um, you know, for those folks during the pandemic that had never gone through anything like that, it was especially challenging. I think your airline example is, is very, very accurate. There's a lot that has to be done to bring even a single line um, up when it's been dormant, let alone a whole facility. Yeah, yeah, that's a challenge. Well, <laughs> so, and I'll say another casualty was my uh, wife, unfortunately, loves chicken wings and her local restaurants kept claiming there was a national chicken wing shortage. But now I understand why, because with the yeah. pandemic, all of that disruption just said they couldn't process as much as they wanted to, obviously. Well, and when the pandemic hit, when the processors um, aren't up and running, it goes upstream. You aren't going to hatch out as many birds and you're not going to put as many birds into the grow out process when you know there's not gonna be space in the processing facility 
in order to accommodate those incoming birds. And so when you go upstream and you put a halt on that process of growing out the birds, when the plants did come back online, you can't just snap your fingers and make that happen. We still need time to get that part of the supply back up and running. And we had whole barns that were completely empty. We had completely emptied them out and we weren't growing any birds out. Well, um, that's not an overnight process to get that up and running and get the labor for that either. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, that whole uh, occult coordination of any of the food chains um, that were involved is a big deal, uh, depending upon how long the growth process is. But certainly it was very difficult to make investment decisions because you had no idea of what was going on. So toilet paper, it's like, yeah, we couldn't get enough of that. And then other things, it's like, no, we can't, uh, we don't have normal demand for that. So you look at the food service side that got mm -hmm. dramatically shut down with the closures of all the restaurants. Yes, retail goes up a little bit, but maybe you're not, your distribution for whatever the product is may not be equally balanced or easy to shift between those things. And so, yeah, the disruption is huge on some of those food chains for sure. Yeah. Um, so that brings up another point. So since I was talking about the, we talked about the disruption from the pandemic, do me a favor, just think from a perspective, if you look at the, all the things you've talked about, obviously what your company's involved in, in cleanliness, uh, sanitation and everything else across the food chains, um, if you flipped it around and said, okay, uh, given everything you now know and understand about um, how the food chains are managed. Now, as you said earlier, they're really different. So produce is a different process than uh, chicken or whatever else we're gonna look at. Um, what do you think in a sense is important from a consumer perspective uh, to understand? Yeah, no, I mean, I, my perspective has changed in great, <laughs> in a, in great depth since becoming a part of the food industry. Um, I mean, I think the number one thing to me that stands out, um, you know, this year we are struggling with a number of recalls and that's driven by all of the challenges that we just discussed, but truly um, food safety and quality is not a given. It's something you kind of just assume as a, a consumer and you don't necessarily understand or um, appreciate all the work that goes into having a consistent product that's always available, that's always safe, um, that looks the same, tastes the same, and you know is gonna have a high level of food safety. I have a much greater appreciation now for what it takes to achieve that. Um, you know, you, you go to the, it, the general consumer goes to the grocery store and they see their favorite product, um, you know, isn't there, there's an empty shelf. Um, taking a step back and understanding all of the these supply chain bottlenecks that are going on right now. Um, I think that's certainly an important thing for, for consumers to have some appreciation of. But um, I think for me, the biggest thing that changed going from consumer to being a part of the food industry was getting an understanding of the extremely high level of regulation, checks and balances, um, you know, there is, there's a high degree of attention paid to food safety and quality. Um, but also I think um, even my perspective on what is processed food has, has been shaped and changed through my time in the industry. Um, there's a very negative connotation attached to processed food. It's assumed that it's unhealthful when um, in truth, processed food is just food that's gone through a process. Even your fresh fruits and veggies are harvested somewhere washed, packaged, that all has to be done in a facility where we're using um, the proper chemistries and the proper steps. And that's really no different than um, those, those products that are um, something like a cracker. <laughs> you know, we've been, we've been smoking, salting, and preserving foods since the dawn of time. Um, and I think whether it's fruits and vegetables or or crackers or uh, a Lunchable, it's all going through a very important process for both safety and quality. You know, it's interesting because you're right. We've been doing this since the beginning of time, going back hundreds of thousands of years, people have been cooking food, you know, eating food, uh, harvesting it and all that. And what's different is it was either me harvesting and eating it, my family, or yep. maybe the guy in the tent next to me or the cave next to me. 
And so it was a very short, what I call food chain. It was never more than just my family or maybe the next guy over kind of a deal. And in the world today, um, it's like I look at some of the ingredients from some of these foods, the, I'll say the more processed ones. So grapes may come from anywhere in the world, get co-packed, um, get shipped, get go through a plant where maybe they're just repackaged or whatever. Uh, and then finally delivered through a distribution chain to retail where I pick it up and say, hey, here's my bag of grapes. It's still the same fundamental product. But to your point, there's a lot of products where the complexity of how that product comes together um, and what's in it and where the ingredients came from is so much more complex than just taking a raw product uh, like produce or something and moving it through, cleaning it, if you will, and just repackaging it. Some of these things are, it's like, I would look at uh, whatever, a cake or a pie or something and say, where, where did those ingredients come from? And the complexity of understanding all of that is much bigger. And certainly with the pandemic, you hit the idea that we had disruptions in the supply chain. And so the two natural lessons that anybody gets from that is number one, we try to be more resilient. So, okay, what other alternative suppliers can I find for this ingredient or this item or this service? And then the second thing you do in a disruption like that, which we certainly, I can say I'm guilty of, yes, I did buy four years worth of toilet paper that are in my garage now. Um, so that throws off the entire supply chain because all of a sudden, you know, Kimberly yeah. Clark or whoever it is that's making the toilet paper goes, oh my God, look at all this demand. We've got to ramp up to get all this stuff out the door now because we're seeing much higher demand for it. And then it's really the consumer who's trying to protect themselves, just like businesses do, by carrying higher what I call work and process inventory as a buffer, knowing that they may not be able to get the supplies. Um, so it really does throw off everything, and it makes it much tougher to forecast where maybe demand might have been slightly seasonal for something like grapes. Now it's all, all of that history is probably useless, I think, from a planning perspective in a situation like this. It absolutely is. And I mean, I feel for our food customers, because even trying to make predictions on what is consumer demand going to drive and when our school's going to come back online. And it's not as simple as snapping your fingers and taking a line that used to do small milk cartons for schools and saying, well, we have this line here, but the demand isn't there for that. We don't know when it's coming back. Seems like it's more driven toward gallon sized jugs, but you know, this line isn't equipped to do that. And so all of our, you know, all of our food processing customers are trying to predict what the demand is going to be. Um, and certainly as you have these hiccups in supply chain, you know, shortages of drivers and trucking, um, a lot of your fresh produce and other short shelf life products really struggle. Um, you know, I mean, they can mold in the truck very quickly and we have people trying to work around that. And you're trying to meet meet consumer demand and consumer um, meet the consumer demand, but also the um, drive from consumers towards more fresh products that haven't gone through a lot of those the addition of of more ingredients for preservation, and they're trying to do all of that meet consumer demand and preferences in an environment where um, you almost need a crystal ball to know what's going to happen next week. Um, it's, it's really a challenge for them to determine which lines should be up, what should be down, what should we bring to market, what should we wait on. Um, it's, it's a real challenge to try and gauge that right now when you don't know what your next um, supply shortage is going to be either. Yeah, well, so to your point, I think it's safe to say <laughs> your company from a pandemic is never going to see lower demand. Your, your challenge is going to be servicing it, but you're never worried about lower demand. The reverse of it is if I was a national sales director for a produce company or something like that, or maybe a baked goods company or whatever it is, meat company or something, I would probably have quit on the spot when I realized, oh my God, everything I've ever built up, all of my data, all of my history, all of my models is now absolutely worth nothing. And I'm just mm -hmm. flying completely blindfolded as to try to guess when and how demand is going to be shaped by channel, whether it's food service, whether it's retail, um, you know, online, I have no idea how that's going to move. And the worst, it's not even directly related to national trends. It's you've got to get down and say, well, I don't know, is this school district going to open up and have in-school learning or not? It's not even directly related. It's individual decisions at every community level that impact you which at that point, it's, it's <laughs> my statistics degree would not have prepared me to do well in this job at that point. So time to look for a new career, but um, <laughs> really, really challenging. So that said, 
um, with the consumers going on um, and the challenges they face uh, from the pandemic. What are any other than the fact that I guess companies do, I'll call it probably uh, maybe up their work and process inventory a little bit higher to try to buffer what I call, uh, I'll call it changes in what I call supply flow that are coming in. Uh, any other big takeaways that they're, uh, I, I guess questions around uh, when I think of these suppliers saying they have these long food chains that were working well internationally, now you've got to look and try to find alternate suppliers, which is also an issue. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's alternate supply. Um, also, the cost of doing business for um, the entire food supply chain has, has changed pretty dramatically. Um, everything from packaging to raw ingredients, um, even anything that's being processed in an environment where we've had to take additional steps to provide masks, sanitizer, physical barriers, anything that we've had to do to retrofit our environments, that costs a lot of money for large facilities to make those changes, even to just accommodate employee safety. Um, so costs of everything have increased pretty dramatically. And so um, certainly there's a growing trend within food processing to come back and say, we understand our costs have gone up. All of our suppliers have had to increase their prices because they're going through the same supply chain issues that we are. Um, you know, how do we transition to more operational efficiency? How do we limit water consumption? How do we um, limit labor requirements while still achieving the same results? And so there's been a very high focus placed on operational efficiency, even just to manage overall cost um, so that these organizations can remain to be, remain profitable. And I think that's been, um, that's been something that I think the food industry has really had to take a close look at um, especially since the beginning of this year in order to mitigate, mitigate some of those costs from the pandemic, we're certainly still dealing with it. Yeah, that's a, a brilliant point actually, because you know, let's pretend for a second that COVID is gone by the end of this year, which is not gonna happen, but if it were, <laughs> uh, disappeared completely from planet earth um, next year, we'd still be suffering, I'll call it the, the, all of the cost impacts that you're talking about now going forward because that was a well-oiled supply chain that was, I'll call it, didn't need a lot of work in process, uh, inventory to make it work, didn't need maybe a ton of suppliers, had a higher operational efficiency because there were lower costs, plants weren't getting shut down, you didn't have to clean a whole plant to get restarted. And so when you look at everything, it was a phenomenally uh, efficient, I'll say, supply chain in general across most of the food chain. And when you look at these impacts, yeah, it makes a lot of sense that costs are going way up. And it's not a simple thing like this is just a simple bubble for something and that all these costs are going away. So unless you can get rid of the requirements, um, guarantee the supply chain in a different way, um, there's no simple way to say, oh yeah, we're gonna go back to the same costs we had after a couple of months uh, mm -hmm. before. That's a big, big difference. And, and to your point, it sounds like it's gonna be permanent in a way. Yeah, I mean, the trend is, especially when we're talking about something like labor costs, once those go up, um, they don't generally vastly decrease. Um, and some of these are procedures that we've had to put in place that will probably continue in perpetuity. I mean, I'm not sure, um, I'm not sure that the industry is going to take a step back from COVID protocols that have been put in place to maintain employee safety. Um, so I think a lot of this is here to stay and certainly the coming years give us some time to adjust. Um, but I think, I think the new norm is still gonna be driving towards um, operational efficiencies and how we limit costs in those ways. Yeah, no, that, you're right. I agree with your thinking that absolutely there is gonna be a new norm and it's not, <laughs> it's not a close cousin to the old norm either. Um, so for many reasons that you brought up, which is absolutely true. Um, and you, uh, you brought up the protocols do relate to food safety. And again, if COVID is gone, food safety isn't going anywhere. And mm -hmm. we have that new Food Safety Modernization Act that Congress passed, I forget how many years ago, but it actually doesn't take effect till 2024. But at that point, there are some I'll call it very stringent requirements um, that everybody in the food chain has to adhere to. On traceability, I don't know if 
um, you have any familiar with that Food Safety Modernization Act, but they're basically yeah. saying that in effect, you should be able to take any point in the food chain and be able to say, oh, I've got a problem here. Let's go backward tracing to find the source as quickly as we can. And then from there, let's go forward trace and see, say, if it's a given farm that, you know, made cherries or whatever it is, who else did they ship cherries to that might be impacted by that? And that capability, as you know, from the recalls we've had in the past, uh, many of them are done initiated either by CDC or USDA uh, to execute the, uh, I'll call it the tracking with all the people in the food chain, all the companies uh, to identify those sources and so on. And some of those, they don't happen quickly. They take a long time, it's costly and so on. And mm -hmm. as to your point, just like automating things like cleaning plant floors, you know, with whatever robot cleaner going forward, it's also, the question is how do you uh, try to automate um, some of that recall stuff? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I mean, the Food Safety Modernization Act the USDA and FDA were operating very differently as far as expectations for their facilities for a long time. And um, there are still portions of, of FSMA that have not been fully implemented. I think um, in the food safety realm, some of those have already um, begun to go in place, having to have unique food safety plans for each um, four walls of a brick and mortar facility within um, you know, a large customer. Those, um, those, especially large companies, have already begun that transition, but I think there's going to be a lot of challenges ahead. Um, there's multiple arms under FSMA as far as, uh, you know, foreign supplier verification, and, and each, each individual arm has its own unique um, specifications, and I think there's still going to be a lot of troubleshooting with FSMA. Some of the wording is extremely broad and open to interpretation. And um, even when you look at an organization like FDA, they've had their own um, staffing and funding and, you know, they've had their own challenges in getting their, um, their inspectors up educated and up to speed on FSMA so that they can give the right direction. Um, and so, I mean, I think we still have many challenges ahead in getting the industry um, to the point that, um, FISMA wants us to be at. Um, I think there's still a lot of work that's going to need to be done as, as an industry, but it's all moving us in the right direction. Yeah, you're right about the direction. I think it's easy to say that, sure, it's more costly, but in a sense, we can't back off. Saying we want a better, safer food supply is really not an option. It's sort right. of like, that's not a choice. And so if you say, okay, then the only question is how do we get there and what's the best way to do that most effective, as you said, and most cost effective as well, operationally cost and all that. Um, so we're headed that direction, which is fine. But when you look at, um, in a sense, these different uh, participants trying to get there, I've looked at legislation, a lot of that, not just the Food Safety Modernization Act, but a lot of other legislation. And I'll say it's a challenge because when you write that legislation, you can either make it really narrow, in which case mm -hmm. maybe a lot of things are not gonna apply because you made it too narrow, or you make it really broad. If you make it really broad, that sounds great, but to your point, then the details, um, the devil in the, is in the details, falls over to the people who are responsible for implementing those laws. And then the other part that happens when you make them really broad is that you wind up in a situation, as you said, where uh, it's very open to interpretation. So company A interprets it one way, company B another, and somebody can, in a sense, bring a lawsuit, you know, whether it be another business or somebody against one of those companies. And you wind up in a sense saying it's ultimately case law, not the uh, written law, the legislative law, but the actual case law, you know, done by judges in a sense that define how those things will be interpreted over time, which mm -hmm. is unfortunate there isn't a better, cleaner way to do that. But it's, it's a tough balance between I'll say stuff that's too narrowly defined and says, oh, we said, we said green beans, we forgot to say string beans, you know, in our law. Yep. And so they were accidentally exempted uh, from, you know, so you can be too narrow and too broad, but that, that is definitely going to be a challenge. And you're right, there's going to be a, a ramp, if you will, over time uh, to get that ironed out where they're going to probably make amendments to the law. And at the same time, you're going to wind up with case law determining, in a sense, how that stuff will be actually applied, um, which is a challenge as well. So that's, yeah, it's a challenging time, I think, if you're in the food chain to figure out how you're going to make that work. The other thing that helps a little bit, maybe, I think, 
I'll say your product line is a big deal because you're working to, as you say, engineer um, safer, cleaner ways um, for the entire food chain to operate, which is, you can't minimize the importance of that. And the fact that you have to make it effective, actually, that thing you brought up about the fact that it's really a partnership. It's not you just sitting in a lab inventing stuff. It's you got to actually work with the real practice of what's going on in the field to make it useful. And you certainly, your company through the partner channel and stuff is obviously working very hard to do that, which is a huge win for all of us uh, from a food safety perspective. The only other thing I'll uh, ask, I guess, as a question is around all of that, um, you, um, I assume the area of what I call the biosecurity stuff is still a wide open field and growing quite a bit. It is. Um, so our biosecurity business is, um, we define that that's primarily our on-farm business prevention of harmful microorganisms entering those facilities from the outside through, um, you know, outside vendors, feed trucks, foot traffic, employees bringing things in. Um, and so that is a growing space. I think um, we're always looking at um, biosecurity on farm and looking at the different pieces of it because it's, it's not just um, human traffic. There's portions of biosecurity that look at, you know, what do wild birds bring in? What do um, other pests, beetles, roaches, what do they bring into the environment that's harmful to young, young birds or young animals as well? And so I think that's gonna be a growing, evolving space we're looking at how do we how do we have because it, it all comes down once again to operational efficiency. How do we grow out our birds with the the best environment, the least death loss, at the lowest cost, and um, with the lowest overall um, salmonella or lowest overall pathogen load inside the bird, so that by the time those birds make it to the processing plant. Um, we can limit the introduction of, of micro even there, doing it up, upstream. That's certainly a trend. So, I mean, that's a, that's a tall order and it's going to be an evolving space um, for many years to come. We're, we're driving a lot of different factors there when we're saying low cost, low death loss, um, low, low micro, and we're, we're trying to drive toward all of that at the same time. So um, there's many, many different um, folks out there that are allied with our company um, driving toward the same goals. It's going to be a, a industry effort. Uh, um, <laughs> so the challenge of that um, is not big. It's closer to insane to try to optimize that. It's really a big, big challenge. And as you said, it's not going to be solved immediately 100%. It can't be. But given that that's the direction and given that's all good, there's always a there's an interesting thing. There's so many different trends, as you know, in I'll call it the food chain industry, uh, especially when you look at consumers and what they care about. And you say, okay, well, I want everything to be organic. I want it to be non-GMO. I want it to be this. I want it to be that. And yet mm -hmm. at, some t at some point, it's going to come down to, well, wait a minute. Um, maybe it is better to have an organically modified mosquito in my uh, dairy farm than one that isn't because the modified one may not be able to transmit certain diseases. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I mean, there is a point where, um, where you have competing goals, where maybe being organic and driving the best food safety, you can't, you, you can't do both after a certain point and you have to choose, um, you know, any path that we go down where we're looking to um, drive a, a specific outcome, there is going to be a point of diminishing returns where it's going to negatively impact something else that is also equally important. And so, um, I mean, consumers have, have a lot of expectations and it's a tall order and we're certainly driving to meet that as an industry. And it's all about um, innovation and prioritization of, of all of those different, all of those different goals that sometimes are competing with each other. And, and I'll be honest, I'm, I'll say I'm a lucky consumer. I eat a lot more than the average consumer, <laughs> but I'm certainly not as smart as the average consumer. And I'll tell you that I'll call it a lot of uh, uh, my more educated friends know much more about food than I do. But that said, they um, would lack the level of understanding about the food chain, the risks involved, and the efforts involved to try to keep it safe, clean, and everything else. Um, that I'm learning through this future foodcast, these interviews. 
it's an immense thing. So I'll flip it back and say, there really isn't, uh, to my knowledge, a great place. If I said, well, where do you learn about food safety? You can say, well, I have a friend who's a chef. He can tell, tell me what he knows. And I have somebody else that knows something else, a friend who's a farmer. He can tell me what he knows. But in a sense, there's no easy way to pull all that knowledge together to say, hey, here's everything you want to know about food safety. You know, come here. And this is one place where you can find it out. I think there's a, especially for consumers, as you say, it's not a static landscape. So what I know about food safety last year isn't really what I should know two years from now, for sure, because mm -hmm. the threats have changed and the solutions have changed. And so if I was educated two years ago, I still have a learning problem to, in a sense, keep updated on the new technology, in a sense, to stay ahead of the curve. And as you said, it's important because myself, my family needs to make those decisions as consumers of all this stuff to identify what do we really want to do. And it does take a lot of information. And your point on competing goals um, couldn't be clearer. I think that's really true. People don't want to hear that. They want to hear there's one. <laughs> I <that>. know. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, just give, just tell me what the best stock to buy is. Don't tell me all the other detail, Katie. Just tell me what the best stock <laughs> is tomorrow that I buy that goes up 10%, okay? And we can end this call right now. Well, that's the same problem with food safety. I wish there were something that simple um, that was a final answer to the problem. And you're right, there isn't. It's only, a, a, I'll call it a long-term progressive sort of war to keep improving the thing. And then as a consumer, I think the challenge is your perspective matters because you're the one ultimately that has to decide what's right for you. So what's mm -hmm. right for Katie may not be right for Jim as a consumer, if that makes sense. Yep. Absolutely. And I mean, there's some great resources out there. Um, I see a lot more of um, our universities that are developing um, programs specifically for food safety, not just food science, but also food safety programs. There are some great organizations like um, IAFP. Um, there's magazines like Food Safety and Quality Magazine um, that are, are great about having these discussions within the industry. Um, I wish there was more for the consumer to kind of bring them, bring them into my world, if that makes any sense, and yeah. share more about all of these efforts. Um, I, I mean, when I entered the food industry, I was absolutely blown away by um, the efforts and the strides that the industry has made. And, um, you know, I wish there was a better way to share that. I, I think we're moving in that direction and trying to do better in um, giving consumers the best information so that they can make good decisions for their, their own food choices. I think that's going to be a part of this whole process as it evolves as well. We've got to do better as an industry to give people that transparency in those resources. You're right. So we, you're right. I think the industry, you know, to give them credit, for a long time, food safety has always been a concern and it is getting better. There's no question of that. Yes, the costs go up associated to that, whether it's regulations, uh, administration, quality assurance, all of the other things, the operational costs and so on, all that goes up. But the, the challenging thing is sometimes the, the in a sense of what's important even changes, not just because it's you and I looking at it, we have different values or goals personally, but even over time. So in a sense, what was a, I'll call it a perfect food label the FDA established for maybe canned soup in 1982 is not the same label that is important this year, right? Mm -hmm. So that everything changes. And so what you communicate about food to a consumer, what's important in a sense that a manufacturer retailer wants to communicate becomes more challenging because that's not static either, you know, based on regulation, based on safety and based on what consumers are demanding to know about, you know, so in, I think I'll say 1980, when I bought a can of soup, I said, how many calories? <laughs> and now I say, wait a minute, is it non-GMO? Is it got high fructose corn syrup? There's a whole bunch of things I can ask about that. Uh, that are different than the questions I asked and what was required. So those label things even change. And so it, it, there's no simple answer, I don't think for, uh, or no static answer, I'll say, for in a sense, what food processors have to communicate, that's always gonna change too, which is a cost in itself. Last question, I guess, is I'll throw out there is technology for, if you think about digital technologies, which ones um, you think will have a significant impact going forward in food safety, both in your business and then I'll say the broader food chain. Yeah, no, certainly um, there's a lot of software and programs being developed for um, traceability purposes. 
being able to have that transparency into the full supply chain. There's great technologies. I kind of referenced it earlier, but um, in food safety, food safety mapping um, so that you can literally pull up a computer screen and be able to trend where you're seeing hotspots on the blueprint of the facility and say, hmm, you know, we have 10 spots surrounding door 15 and I can look at this entire map and I see a trail leading from door 15 to uh, door seven. And so we think that the source is somewhere there. Um, tracking and trending that information through better computer software um, I think that'll be, that's something that you're going to see more of is um, being able to use that software for both in-plant tracking and then certainly tracking and transparency as an industry. Actually, yeah, it's a brilliant point because you're right. One of the beauties is we're combining, I'll call it data, data automation, if you will, the collection of data automatically through, I'll call it devices, environments, whatever it is. Um, and at the same time, saying we've got the right statistical tools that allow us to analyze that data. And then even machine learning algorithms that say, hey, are there some better ways based on what we're seeing over time and the changes in behavior to even improve the quality of our practices, if you will, to reduce that. And also to properly forecast to your point, if I saw, if I saw whatever this uh, infection, if you will, or whatever it is, um, uh, a virus or something from door 70 to door 10, what was the direction, what was the time? given that I applied whatever uh, new techniques after I identified that, how effective was that going forward? Um, all of that kind of stuff, that's a ton of analysis. And you're right, most of that, we need to figure out a way how to automate that analysis um, because it, it would be, I'll call it impossible to do that any other way if you can't automate it. And so I'll call it the analytics piece, um, maybe machine learning a little bit, you brought up the blockchain piece, I'm sorry, you brought up the traceability piece end to end. And that's where, in a sense, having trusted data that goes into a network, you can validate it at the point of origin, and then it gets shared correctly through the network uh, to every, in a sense, point that needs to know about it. Um, something like blockchain as a technology can add value there. Um, yeah. any, anything, any other thoughts on that? No, I think you summarized it very well. I mean, we've it's, it's all, another big part of that tall order we have as an industry. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a shame because it's certainly, none of you are gonna get to take a vacation anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it, it is job security to an extent. Um, That's right, there's, That's the positive side, I forgot. <laughs> yep, a lot for us to do, um, a lot for us to do yet as an industry. Yeah, no, it's awesome. So yeah, I can't, is there anything else that I should cover that I haven't? I don't think so. Um, through the course of our conversation, I, hit, I think we hit some really great topics. Yeah, and I think what, what's really unusual, I, I, I can talk to a lot of people in what I call the food chain in different roles. Uh, you know, maybe somebody grows grapes, maybe somebody else is a little ice cream plant in Vermont or whatever they're doing. But what's interesting about your company is both good and bad, you have responsibility and visibility into the entire food chain, all different parts of it. And you, you're, I'll call it a partner in making sure all that works, but that's a ton of information where I think other businesses, you know, maybe I'll become an apple farmer or something, but I won't have to understand the entire food chain. Do you know what I mean? I'll have my own responsibility, but your company literally, and with your partners, the service partners, you literally have to see across every channel of the food chain and all the different roles in each one of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a big deal. So with that, you know, I, I want to thank you for all the work you do. Um, uh, not just individually, but the company and your partners, in a sense, in helping us, in a sense, have a much safer food chain, for sure. Um, and the fact that we will be able to, in a sense, do well going forward has a lot to do with, in effect, the capability that uh, your company and, and the partners provide to all these different members of the food chain. Yep. Great. Yeah. So with that, um, I'll end the interview and want to thank you once again, um, you know, Katie Moore. Uh, from Sterilex uh, for helping us understand everything to do with uh, almost all the channels of the food chain and all the roles within those channels in terms of how important it is for food safety, cleanliness, sanitation, and everything else. Yeah, thank you for having me, Jim. It's, um, it's uh, a great thing to be able to discuss and um, get a different perspective on. So certainly thank you for the invite. Great, well, we really appreciate it and uh, look forward to finding out more 
because you'll be an easy guest to bring back. The simple answer is that this stuff is not static. And so I'm sure in two years, there'll be a lot of new things <laughs> to change. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Katie. This has been awesome. I appreciate it. Yep. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Future Foodcasts. Future Foodcast is powered by Farm to Plate, the leading food blockchain platform. Subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date with the very latest innovations in the food industry.